Hey everybody, guess what? You get a bonus VLL recording this week for fans of the Romans series. I apologize, you're gonna have to wait till tomorrow for that. But I got a special message from a listener that I felt really shouldn't wait. He messaged me saying last night, I have been melting my brain on this. If you're at all inclined, perhaps, would you tell me your thoughts on the rapture slash revelation slash and the end times? I recently began to delve a bit deeper into all of this, and now I honestly don't really know what to think. Thanks. Well, you are in luck, because this has been something, full disclosure here for everybody listening, in my Christian education, going to Bible college and seminary, eschatology was something that I specialized in, especially going to Bible college where most of my professors were dispensationalists, and they told me if you're going to disagree with us, you got to dot all your I's, cross all your T's, you got to get this 100% right if you're going to get that A. So, I've made it a pet project for a very long time to really understand, to know, and to be able to defend Lutheran eschatology and where all of this stuff comes up. But obviously, if we were going to do a full presentation on it, it would be a whole huge series. And I've got two other whole huge series going on with Romans and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So for now, as kind of a hold-me-over snack before we can later on get more in-depth, here is a 30,000-foot flyover view of Lutheran eschatology. And here's where we're going to start. If you have a Bible handy, you're probably going to be flipping through a whole lot of different pages here. So I would recommend maybe having a pen and paper just to write down all these verse references so you can see what I'm getting at. But first... Let's go to Isaiah chapter 55, and we're going to start in the 10th verse, where our Lord says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Why am I reading that when we're talking about eschatology or end times? Uh, real quick, eschatology literally just means like the word concerning the end. It is endology. If we're going to get into endology, we really need to center ourselves on the word of God. There is prophecy involved. So when God says in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, that, hey, my word does not come back empty. Whenever God speaks, whenever his word tells us something, we need to believe it. And we need to believe it without inserting something else into the text. We don't want to insert our own reason because that's not always going to come back to God. He says in Isaiah 55, it shall not return to me empty. 
if I speak something out of my reason or my charts or my conclusions, my opinions, that could go up to God as totally empty. His word won't, but what I come up with might. The same thing goes for tradition. This is one of the reasons Lutherans are very much about sola scriptura. So long as the church fathers are going to disagree with each other on various parts of eschatology, we're not really going to be able to trust absolutely everything they say. There is no guarantee that church tradition or the consensus of the fathers is going to really bring about the truth or come back to God without being empty. So, for all of this, when it comes to Lutheran eschatology, we really, really, really love to focus on what God himself says about it. There's all sorts of people out there who are going to run up along these charts. They're going to look at the prophecies of Revelation, and we're going to touch on some of those. Not all of them. Again, I don't have 50 hours, unfortunately. But we're going to touch on some of them. But first, let's go to what God himself says. That's going to be the most important thing. So, Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 is our first of the controlling hermeneutic verses. The other one is going to be all the way in the back of our Bible here. And while we're turning there, by controlling hermeneutic verses, what I mean is how do we read the Bible? We're going to read the Bible the way the Bible tells us to read the Bible. Hermeneutics is interpretation. Hermeneutics is how we go about understanding Holy Scripture. And with that, if we read the Bible the way God tells us to read it, we're going to have a lot easier of a time finding out the truth. So the second verse here, which comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we learn something. We learn about what the entirety of the scriptures is about. So, from Revelation chapter 19, we read in verse 9, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now the way we Lutherans are going to understand it, prophecy is being a spokesman for God. A prophet is somebody who simply writes down or speaks what God wants him to speak. And is there a foretelling aspect to it? Sure. But a prophet is more about foretelling, speaking on behalf of the Lord, than he is about speaking the future. And guess what? Because of that, all of the Bible counts as prophecy. It really does. It counts as those who, by the Holy Spirit of God, speak on God's behalf to us. And when St. John here writes in Revelation 19 verse 10, that's another verse to write down, when he writes down that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, he is saying that Jesus Christ himself 
everything about him, testimony of Jesus being like the gospel, that is the central message that permeates all of Holy Scripture. If it is not about Jesus at all, or if it doesn't come around to being about Jesus at all, you're going to have a hard time justifying putting it in the Bible. So our two hermeneutic verses here, being Isaiah 55, 11 and Revelation 19, verse 10, tell us that God's word is going to be supreme here, and everything is going to be centered around Christ. Christ and nothing else. This is one of the reasons that we hold to solus Christus, or Jesus Christ alone. It's one of the five soli of the Protestant Reformation. So now we can get into eschatology with these two rules in mind. We want to pay special attention to what God says, and we want to keep in mind the entire time that this is really all about Jesus. So with that said, we're going to go to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to take a look real quick at the Great Commission. Sorry for the Bible opening, page turning ASMR. Some people like it, some don't, but we are going through a whole lot of Bible here, so please bear with me. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. After Christ's resurrection, it says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Two important things to note then. First off, Jesus comes out and just says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. Why is this important? Because you're going to hear some people say, well, Christ is going to return and he's going to institute some thousand year earthly reign where he's in basically the world monarch controlling all humanity, saved and unsaved, for a thousand years. And there's going to be this glorious uh, like political control over everything. But for the Lutheran, if Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth already, why would he need to come take more? It's important. We see that Jesus is already in charge. He does not need to be here in a physical sense reigning from a throne because he's already in charge. Second thing here, when he says at the very last verse, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That means that there is an end of the age in which the nature of Christ's being with us does change. It does not say that he is going to be back to take more authority. He already has that. Like he just said in verse 18, he's already got all authority in heaven and on earth. But he is going to be with us until the end of the age as he is now, where he is in our hearts by faith. He comes to us in the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. 
when two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst of us, Matthew chapter 18. And also we are united to Christ in our baptism, as Romans chapter 6 teaches. So Christ is with us in these ways, and at the end of the age there is a change. There is something that takes place to change that. So Jesus says, to the end of the age. And we understand that the end times, the final everlasting state after the resurrection, we are always with Christ in a better, more expansive way than we are currently. But Jesus is truly with us until that end. Again, he's not going to abandon us at the end of the age, but him remaining with us to the end of the age changes at that end of the age for something even better. Now, let's turn to John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verse 36 here, which is another incredibly important thing that our Lord Jesus says. Now, let's go ahead and start in the 33rd verse here, where he is before Pilate, the governor. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pay special attention here to verse 36. Again, God's word does not come back to him empty. Now, the Bible itself, 100% is the word of God. But when God himself, and Jesus is God, when he speaks, we really do need to listen on what he's going to say about eschatology here. This is from, you know, the divine horse's mouth, so to speak. Oh, Lord, cleanse my lips if that's blasphemy. But in verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Post-millennialists and pre-millennialists those who believe there's going to be some thousand or maybe golden age of the church where the church rules the world, that's post-millennialism. That's a kingdom of this world. Hands down, whether or not the post-millennialist is going to admit that, that's kind of what they believe. That's what they want. They want a church that comes from a whole bunch of people born here in the world to be running the world as a kingdom of this world that takes its orders from Jesus who is now running the world like a worldly leader. Same thing with the premillennialist who says, well, Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world yet, but it will be. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Present tense. He doesn't say, my kingdom is not of this world yet. I, I have to be very careful not to insert something into the text here that Jesus probably isn't saying. 
somebody might repost or reply if they are a pre-millennialist wait a second revelation 11 verse 15 says then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever but that is still consistent with what Jesus is saying. His kingdom is not of this world, and it will never be of this world. It will never be like kingdoms in this world. So, the kingdom of the world, which is currently run, unfortunately, by the devil, will be taken and transformed to become like the kingdom of God. It will be absorbed, changed, sanctified. And besides that, what does the uh, angel say? He shall reign forever and ever. So the premillennialist here wants to say Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years, and then comes the end state. But here it's saying Jesus is going to reign forever and ever without including any sort of comma, period, um, time stamp or anything like that. It's the kingdom of the world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus and he's just going to reign forever. So what I've been getting at here, Lutherans, properly speaking and historically, have been amillennialists. Now don't get it twisted. Amillennialism does literally mean no millenniumism. People go into Revelation chapter 20 and they see that the premillennialist says, yes, Jesus will come back and reign for a thousand years. The postmillennialist says, well, Christ is going to come back after that thousand year period, whether or not it's a literal thousand years. For the amillennialist, we look at the entire book of Revelation being an apocalyptic prophecy. We say there's a whole lot of poetic and cryptic language in here and the thousand aspect of a thousand years really does tie into the church era after all the psalmist says uh, god owns all the cattle on a thousand hills i guarantee you god owns all the cattle on all the hills not just a thousand hills it's not like hill number 1001 that that belongs to bill over there and not god and St. Peter says a thousand years to God is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. The number 1,000 is more like a number of completion, very similar to the way the number 7 is presented in Holy Scripture. In other words, we believe that Jesus Christ is going to return, and when he returns, boom, judgment day. That's it. We don't need a golden era of the church before Jesus comes back. We aren't really going to see a thousand years of political paradise under Christ as world king here. When Jesus returns, he returns. It is judgment day. And he says just about as much here in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in the 31st verse, where our Lord Christ says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, or welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, Jesus says at the very beginning of this passage, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. If Jesus is already on the earth as a world monarch, like the pre-millennialist believes, if he has already been reigning for a thousand years, when did he leave? Where does the Bible say that he leaves again just to come back with all the angels? Am I making sense here? Jesus says when he comes in his glory, Meaning when he returns, the second coming is Christ returning and enacting the final judgment. And he says, with all the angels, all the angels with him, which tracks with uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus says that happens when he returns, full stop. I mean, he says this again, more or less, in Luke chapter 21, beginning in the 25th verse. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, 
Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told him in a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That generation bit, by the way, that's uh, from a Greek term that's more for ethnicity, for the people group that he's speaking to. But he says, everybody's going to be quaking. For you, for the believer, this is your hope. This is your redemption drawing near, your redemption from the corruption of the world. Real quick question, though. If Christ is returning for a millennial kingdom, why on earth would the nations be afraid? If Jesus sets up a big worldwide country that he rules as the king over somewhere in earthly Jerusalem, wouldn't they just rejoice that they got a second chance? Like, oh man, now I really can't deny Jesus. This is all right. Okay. We had a bunch of wars, we had a bunch of famines and plagues and everything, we had a bunch of signs in the heavens, but Jesus is on the throne, and I can't deny him anymore, so I guess I'll submit and put my faith in him. Well, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying everything gets shaken up, everything gets turned topsy-turvy, the world is about to be made new, and the redemption of the believers is imminent. It is a good thing, while the wicked are terrified because they know that's it that's their judgment final sign right there no more second chances now somebody might opine they might object wait a minute the bible says there are two resurrections if everything is happening all at once more or less how can you say it's one and done christ returns and then it's judgment day they will cite Revelation chapter 20, beginning in the fourth verse. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So again, on the thousand years aspect, we're looking at the entirety of the church era. But the second resurrection that we find here in um, verses 12 through 14 of Revelation 20, and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So, there is an opinion that this is the second resurrection. The first resurrection happens before the millennial kingdom kicks off. You know, then there's the rapture, and then the thousand years later, there is a second resurrection for all the damned. But that's not exactly what St. John is saying here. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So all of the dead here are brought back to life. And he says in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the general resurrection of all of the dead. If the first resurrection is the resurrection of all the saints, and then the second resurrection is the resurrection of all the damned, then where is the hope? Why is St. John saying, if, if, someone is not in the book of life. He's saying that there is a possibility that some of these people here in the second resurrection are going to be saved. And it tracks with what our Lord Jesus Christ says here about the resurrection in John chapter 5. From John chapter 5, starting in the 25th verse, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says that at this end point time there is a judgment for everybody that is resurrected. This is incredibly important. Because I believe that that is the second resurrection for everybody. What's the first resurrection? That's your salvation, brother. Let's look at the book of Ephesians real quick just to get a little bit of context. In the book of Ephesians, St. Paul tells us something very, very, very important. From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, in Revelation 20, it says that the first resurrection includes the saints reigning with Christ where he is. That's you as a believer right now. St. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you were dead. 
you were dead to God as a sinner. Your first resurrection is belief in Jesus. It is being united to Christ in your baptism. And then God does indeed raise you up with him. And he does seat you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are united to Christ in your baptism. Galatians chapter 3 says, All who have been baptized into Christ have put on the Lord Christ. Where is Jesus? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where are you? Yes, your body is here on the earth, but in a very special sense, the one that goes beyond our understanding, you are with Jesus right now. That is the first resurrection for all the believers. And you do share with Christ in his reign right now. It's a beautiful thing. At the second resurrection, there are two types of resurrection. A resurrection unto eternal life and a resurrection unto damnation. That is the second resurrection which leads to one or the other result. And that is basic Lutheran amillennialism. Christ returns, that's it. Judgment day, we rejoice to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, somebody's going to ask, though, well, what about the rapture? Well, let's talk about the rapture. There is really only one pericope, only one passage in Holy Scripture that could be really used for rapture. But Lutherans have a very different definition of rapture than, say, Baptists or Calvinists. Let's go ahead and read where this passage comes from in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and onward. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. St. Paul here, he's addressing this worry that people have, that Jesus had already returned somehow, and that, well, oh my goodness, that means you missed his return, no hope for you. And no hope for your loved ones who died. Uh, that's it. Just some people were resurrected. And if somebody dies after that, no resurrection for them. He is saying, no, you have to understand that the rapture, properly speaking, is the resurrection of the living. You can be resurrected or brought to the perfection of the resurrected state while you're still alive. You don't have to die first. But, in case you were worried, yes, other Christians are going to be the first to rise, followed by the non-Christians, the wicked who will be resurrected. And then you, you believer, you are going to rise from the dead 
as well. Even if you are alive, you will be resurrected while living. A sudden change in your nature. The perfection of who you are and what you are. Boom. That quickly. Now he does continue. Because some people might say, oh, well, yes, of course. But that still means that there's a rapture because this is the first resurrection. Well, we already went through how the first resurrection is... When you become a believer, when you are baptized, you go from death to life in Christ. Then the second resurrection is everybody having the uh, more physical understanding of the resurrection. But St. Paul keeps going. A lot of times people will forget that he is bringing this up more detail afterwards. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, somebody's going to bring up another passage, though, saying, hey, well, okay, that's all very nice, but what if he's saying that all in light of the destruction of non-believers who are warring against God, as opposed to the destruction of non-believers in the final judgment. They might bring up for this kind of Tim LaHaye version of rapture theory that Jesus resurrects all the believers and they go to heaven real quick then they come back down to reign on earth with Christ. Well, they'll bring up Matthew chapter 24 where our Lord Jesus says, starting in verse 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now the idea here is, ah, you see, two men will be in the field and one will be raptured into heaven, the other will not. Therefore, the, the rapture must be true here in the Tim LaHaye sense, the left behind sense. Except that Jesus says it's like the flood. What happened in the flood? 
In the flood, God swept away and drowned all the wicked. Those who are swept away are those who are judged, those who are destroyed. And Jesus is saying that at this moment, the ones who are left are the ones who were spared for life. They were not counted among the wicked. Those who are taken away are the wicked. So it's not the rapture in the left behind sense, it's the final judgment, really. (laughs) Jesus is saying, hey, when I come back, it's going to be like the days of Noah. God's wrath is going to be poured out on mankind, on all those who are not believers. And if you are a believer, then like the flood, like Noah and his family, you will be spared. Those who are not are going to be swept away like the flood. A lot of times people will use this as a proof text for the rapture. I saw it in Bible college, and it's, it's just not scripturally sound when you actually think about what the flood meant and why it was important. That said, though, what is the point of eschatology? Because we'll, we'll get wrapped up in all of this stuff. I mean, you could probably bring up the whole Great Tribulation thing. I will tell you, I wholeheartedly believe that the Great Tribulation is the entirety of the church era. On the one hand, Jesus reigns over all the earth. But on the other one, because Satan is a, in constant rebellion here, he is always persecuting the church. That's just how it is. It's an already but not yet. We are already with Christ at the throne of God, reigning with him, but we are not yet in that final blessed resurrection state, so we suffer persecution. So, Jesus tells us to be ready. St. Peter tells us what being ready looks like, and that's basically just trying your best to be a good Christian here. In being watchful, reminding yourself of the hope we have in Christ's return. Now, to cap all this off, though, I do got to address the elephant in the room of what about Revelation 20? What about the uh, thousand years? What about all this stuff that makes it seem like, well, dude, you're not taking the Bible literally when you're reading it and advocating for uh, millennialism? Well, first off, We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll tell you there is a difference between reading the Bible literally and reading the Bible physically. Because remember, the premillennialist might say, I read the Bible literally, and when it says a thousand years, it means a thousand years. But you know what they're not taking literally? When Jesus says, his kingdom is not of this earth. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. They don't take those literally. They don't take Christ at his word. They are having a hard time believing that God says his word does not come back to him empty in Isaiah 55:11. At the end of the day, they're not taking those passages literally. What they do want to take literally is a thousand years. And by literally, they mean physically. They want a physical thousand years, a thousand years that you can spend touching, tasting, seeing, hearing, feeling. And with that, we address Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a while. Now, what does that mean? Satan is bound by a chain. He's put on a leash. He is uh, limited in his presence before the great apostasy so that he cannot deceive the nations. It doesn't say so that he can't do anything. It doesn't say the demons are bound up and shut up and unable to do anything. It doesn't even say the demons have a leash on them. What it says is that the devil has a chain put on him so that he might not deceive the nations or all the people groups of the world until the thousand years, the church era, were ended. What does that mean? Well, taking this passage literally, it means that the devil is unable to deceive the peoples. The gospel can no longer be restrained. He can try. Lord knows he's got this leash on him like a, like a pit bull in a front yard in some bad neighborhood where the pit bull can try his best to reach you and bite you, but thank God that chain is around his neck so he can't tear your flesh. We've all probably seen that online. Please avoid pit bulls. Satan is just like that. In fact, he's, he's the bull cast into a pit, right? That's what it says. He's put into a pit for that reason. But does that mean he can't do anything? No, it just means that his reach, his power is limited so that the gospel, God's word, his truth can reach the nations. And then we see in verse 4, Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what does that mean? Well, what does Jesus tell the apostles in John chapter 20? We're going to go ahead and look at that because it says power to judge an authority to judge people. When did that happen? Well, we look here in John chapter 20, and we see here, receive the Holy Spirit. This is John chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. My goodness, it is at that moment that our Lord Jesus Christ gave to his saints the ability, or what we call the office of the keys, the ability to forgive or bind sins, to declare that upon them on Christ's behalf. That's already happened. I am reading John 20 perfectly literally and connecting it here with Revelation chapter 20, which says again, that seated on them, on these thrones, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And that applies to you today. As we saw in Ephesians, where St. Paul says in chapter 2, that you are already with Christ. You are already in your baptism in the heavenlies. You are with Jesus. 
right now. We are in that millennium. As for a thousand, again, that is a figurative number. A thousand years to God is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. I'm not going to concern myself with a particular physical period of time. I will say, however, that those thousand years are probably just about run out. It seems to me that the devil absolutely has the power to deceive the nations because we live in an era of hideous lies, and it is, you know, it's disgusting to have to see it. But we are in that great apostasy right now, and I pray to the Lord that that time will be short. All right. I hope that helps. That's a 30,000 foot flyby view of Lutheran amillennialism, which I wholeheartedly believe to be the biblical position. If you have any questions, feel free, please feel free to shoot me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. And if anybody wants any more recordings like this, please feel free to send in that request. I will say that for anybody who donates and just email me very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. I do like to mail out thank you notes, cards, etc. And I am more than happy to have personalized answers for a lot of these questions. But until we meet again, and until the next recording, our Lord bless you and keep you. I hope that this has been incredibly edifying and hopefully not confusing at all. Amen and amen.